0: Fighting a wildfire in Texas. Building a network to connect 40 million people to the internet. Cutting pollution with chainsaws. Hear Chubb customers tell their stories at chubb.com slash podcast. And stay tuned after the show to hear how a family moved to Napa and created one of the largest private wineries in the world. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check. And today we're bringing you a bonus conversation that captures this moment in politics and one of the key voices shaping it.
1: We've come to deliver two messages to the Federal Reserve. The first is that workers' voices need to be heard. Macroeconomic policy is really important, and it affects all of our lives, and it can't be left up to just a few wealthy corporate executives or elite bankers. And the voices of workers around the country need to be heard as part of that policymaking process.
0: That was activist Adi Barkin in 2014, a Yale-trained lawyer focused on reforming the Federal Reserve. Adi spent years— working with the Center for Popular Democracy to push progressive economic policies and win over top politicians. The Democratic Party even changed its official party platform in 2016 because of Adi's work. And that work earned Adi a spot on Politico's list of 50 Most Influential Thinkers and Doers last year, alongside honorees like Bernie Sanders and Paul Ryan. Here was Adi Barkan earlier this month confronting Senator Jeff Flake about his planned vote on Republicans' tax bill. Why Remember
1: not take my stand CPR now? And, uh, you can be an American hero. You really can. You're already you're, there. You're, you're halfway there. If the votes match the speech.
0: That video, which was recorded aboard a flight from Washington, D.C. to Arizona, went massively viral as Adi questioned Flake for more than 11 minutes and urged him to oppose the bill. And as you heard, Adi's voice has changed quite a bit because he has ALS, commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and it is ravaging his body. For progressives, Adi is giving voice to their frustration over a bill that they say ignores patients and ignores the popular voice. Meanwhile, Adi's critics say that he's playing up fears, fears of Medicare cuts that they say aren't going to happen because the Senate will find a way to avert them. Adi and I spoke on Friday in Washington, D.C., as Republicans' tax bill inched toward a likely conclusion in the next few days. As we record this on Monday, it appears that they have the votes to pass the bill. Adi's voice when we spoke was shot. His eyes were drained. He was visibly exhausted, and I think you'll hear that in the conversation. And given its time-sensitive nature, we wanted to post it as soon as possible. As always, you can find me at at ddiamondatpolitico.com. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. And now... Here's Adi Barkin. A week and a half ago, you were best known for your advocacy around the Federal Reserve. Now you're in the middle of this healthcare and tax fight. Your video is being shown on national TV. You're getting retweeted by Colin Kaepernick. What is it like to be at the center of this moment? It's a little
1: surreal. Um, uh, but in some ways also natural, because I've always been a very arrogant person, and um, I've always thought that my calling was to build uh, progressive movements for racial and economic justice. So, um, you know, uh, it's just a lot more poignant than it would be if I were healthy and I was Um, organizing other people to share their stories. Um, And in this case, I'm talking about myself all the time. Um, So it's intense. But it's also, I said this on the Facebook Live event that we did with Linda Sarsour and Winnie Wong and and Bob from the Women's March, um, which you should check out if you have time. It was like I had never felt as much love as I did that morning family and friends and um, comrades from across the movement coming to the heart office building together and like standing up for what we believe in um, in solidarity with one another and as part of a community of 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 love and vision Um, can't get much better
0: Given all the demands on you you're talking to me you met with Bernie Sanders. You've been all over the place in the past number of days. You're balancing that with your ALS. How are you able to manage that?
1: Uh, to be honest, I'm not doing a good job this week. I've been working 18 to 20 hours a day. I haven't been sleeping much. As My voice is dramatically worse than it was a week ago. Um, I think I'll be able to get it back when I start sleeping a little bit. But... Um, you know I haven't worked this hard in many years um, so the challenge is that the stakes are so high um, we have to stop this thing if we're like I actually think we have a chance to do it and if, if we did it would be uh, an enormous uh, have an enormous impact on um, the whole country so with stakes that high it feels Insane to privilege my own health Um, and too, you know, too selfish. Um, That said, I assume that the fight is longer than a week and I do need to be able to keep going. But, um, you know, I feel like I want to push myself as hard as I can um, and get to the end of next week and prevent them from passing this bill and then, Take a
0: couple weeks to sleep. We're talking on Friday afternoon after the conference report has been signed. It's not clear exactly when the vote will be. What happens if the Medicare cuts, which you have lobbied against, the idea that this tax bill will incur paygo cuts that lead to dramatic changes in Medicare and other social programs? What happens if Congress does avert those? Is that is that victory? Is that enough?
1: No, it's definitely not victory um, because the tax cuts still, and the tax scam still cuts taxes for the richest, raises taxes for 22 million families um, and um, creates uh, a larger deficit that Paul Ryan and Marco Rubio and everybody else are saying Uh, we're going to have to come back to uh, make some entitlement cuts. So even if they don't have mandatory pay-go cuts, um, their agenda for 2018 is uh, cutting the social safety net that protects you and me and all of our friends and loved ones from tragedy. Uh, So hell no, it's not enough.
0: And Paul Ryan has signaled repeatedly that Medicare reform entitlement changes are on the table for him next year. You've talked to senators, Senator Collins, you famously talked to Senator Jeff Lake on the plane about the need to protect this program. Has any Republican been more receptive than you were expecting?
1: So those are the only two Republicans who I've spoken to directly. Um, They both listened carefully. Um, I think uh, they're feeling a lot of heat. I hope that they are fighting quietly behind closed doors. Um, But I have to say, you know, it's very hard for me to know what the hell to expect from a... a, um, Group of people who think that the big problem in America is that the richest people don't have enough money, and that sick people have too good insurance, and then um, meals on wheels and uh, foster care is you know too generous. So asking me what I what I whether I'm surprised or not is kind of besides the point.
0: One tricky thing that you're hitting on is that Republicans can be receptive. They can say nice things. Jeff Flake can come back and talk to you. At the end of the day, that only goes so far, has to cast a vote. That would be helpful. But by the same token, if Jeff Flake doesn't come back and talk to you on the plane, there is no viral segment. You and I probably aren't talking today. It's maybe the back of Jeff Flake's head from 10 rows away. How do we get from, you worked for years to convince lawmakers, policymakers to listen, whether that's through Fed Up, now through Center for Popular Democracy. In this moment when things are so heated and so partisan, how can lawmakers be convinced to listen to folks who maybe are delivering a message that they don't want to hear? Is it confrontation? Is it being respectful as an advocate? Is there something else?
1: So I do think that they are humans, and they are moved by a genuine human interaction. And I do think that some of them, not enough, have some core values uh, relating to uh, human dignity and democratic processes. And... You know, I think that the best we can do is to try to appeal to their best selves um, and encourage them to decide for themselves what is it that they want to be doing with their lives, what is it that they want to be doing with their careers. They only get one shot at this. Um, If they're happiest going to K Street making the billions or the tens of millions, and they just want to give K Street the votes, so be it, and that's what most of them or many of them are doing. But some of them, I think Susan Collins is definitely one of these, have some real commitments to their constituents, to the notion of the public interest, to the, uh, to the desire to improve the lives of her community members. And so she needs to decide now, in this kind of heightened moment, um, is it really worth undermining the entire national health care system in order to give Donald Trump Jr. some tax breaks?
0: Something I've wondered as a reporter who's covered Congress, I've seen the activists get arrested. You were on the other side of that. You were thrown in the Capitol Hill jail. What's it like?
1: I was treated uh, wonderfully by the Capitol Hill police. They very gingerly and carefully uh, took me out of my wheelchair, helped me into the paddy wagon, helped me out, patted me down, pulled the chair back for me to help me sit down. And the most wonderful part was that they gave us the thumbs up as they left the holding bin They said, God bless you. They said, keep up the good work. And the Capitol Hill police in the building today, when I went into Hart and Dierkson were giving me fist bumps. So um, they know whose side we're on. They know whose side Donald Trump is on. And they need to do their job, and that's okay. Um, But at the end of the day, they, unlike the Republican Senators, recognize our basic humanity and our shared shared belonging in this American community. It is important to remember the personal wealth of the people who are passing this bill. They're insanely wealthy. This is a self-serving piece of legislation. You know, the the number one biggest loopholes to get expanded rather than trying to be contracted a little is real estate development. You know, I wonder how that got in there. Um, and, you know, uh, as I said on Twitter this morning, this bill is racist, is sexist, and is greedy. And I don't think that's the legacy that John McCain and Jeff Flake and Susan Collins and Bob Corker plan to leave this institution with. Oh, one more important thing that will appeal to your wonky folks, as opposed to all of my moralistic um, filibustering, is what's the rush to do this now? If you're Susan Collins, if you're Jeff Flake, why pass a bill that you know is so deeply flawed, in 2017, instead of waiting till 2018, work with the Democrats. You could pass a bipartisan tax cut that lowers rates for the middle class, closes loopholes, and um, doesn't deprive people of health insurance.
0: There are folks who are going to be listening to this who agree with your message and and think you are doing the most important work in the nation right now. There are also folks who are going to listen and vehemently disagree, who think that Medicare and entitlement programs need to be scaled back, that like the idea of the tax package. Regardless of where someone's politics fall, you're someone who took the initiative, questioned a lawmaker, made a national story simply by having the gumption to do that and the poise and knowledge to engage on policy issues. Is there a lesson for the average American on how to approach a congressman or another policymaker? Is is an incumbent in this moment of big policymaking for everyone to be ready if that moment comes and the senator is walking in front of you to know how to approach that person to have your your talking points ready? I mean, I realize you are not the norm, but you also have lessons for others.
1: I do think there's a lesson. I think the lesson is that this is our democracy, that it behooves us to take ownership over it and responsibility for it, um, that the government belongs to the people, and we should see government uh, servants as our servants, um, as the... um, as the servants of the public interest. Um, And yes, of course, I I want Americans to be as informed as possible about um, public affairs, you know, about our history, which I think we often are woefully ignorant of, um, about the ways in which you can engage. But, you know, I think it's unreasonable to imagine that um, a large number of people would be professional political actors. I mean, that's what I've trained myself to do is to influence government decision makers. And um, some people don't get their jollies from that like I do. People have other passions, you know, and and, and um, they pursue those through their career if they're lucky. And if they're less lucky, then they pursue a decent paycheck. And uh, Trying to make ends meet, so I don't want everybody to be a professional activist, but I do want everybody to have a little bit of hope um, and a little bit of um, a little bit of hope that uh, the government can be made to be accountable, that democracy can work, um, and that it is worth their while to get engaged. So, you know, we're calling on folks to come in and get engaged, come to Congress, go to their members' offices around the country and voice their stories. And I guess uh, the point I wanted to make, which is that, um, you know, the the building trades worker and the nurse um, and the accountant all can impact their government officials simply by telling their stories. That's what struck people, I think, about the conversation with, like, maybe part of it was that I knew my policy, but part of it is that I've got a pretty sad story at the moment, um, and, uh, and I think people, you know, this is what uh, one of my dear colleagues on this effort said to me, the reason why these Republicans are voting the way they're voting is because they fail to see our humanity. If they were to see us as human beings, we would have very different policy outcomes. And that was what I was trying to do with Senator Flake, was appeal to him as a human being and get him to see that I, too, am a human being and that his policy choices will affect my life and my
0: children's life.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you. Thanks for
0: being in Washington, D.C. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Adi Barkan and the Center for Popular Democracy. You can find out more about them at populardemocracy.org. You can find out more about Pulse Check by searching Politico Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. And we'll be back with a new episode of Pulse Check very soon. This podcast was made possible by Chubb. Hear how this family created one of the largest private wineries in the world, right now. We started making wine in 1948, one bottle at a time. Today, we produce nearly 20 million cases a year. Chubb has helped us grow for the past 30 years. They helped us prevent equipment problems during harvest and provided guidance when we started exporting internationally. Now we're working with them on cybersecurity. My grandfather... Taught me to make a wine that over-delivers. Chubb over-delivers. Hear more stories at chubbcom podcast.